And um, let me just also mention to you um, that we normally reserve five minutes for rebuttal, but we can change that number if you want to. Five minutes is great, you're is that good? Okay, very good. And let me make sure our timer is going. We are good. It says red right now. So. Okay, there we go. All right, thank you. Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the court. I'm Stephen White, and I represent Gene and James Hill. The Hills humbly become come before the court today to insist that a state agency honor the most fundamental of its bargains that it maintains with the regulated public, namely that it follow its own duly promulgated rules and regulations. The Hills in this case applied for Medicaid benefits in 2021 with the agency on the basis of a rule maintained in the agency's own administrative code. That rule includes great aunts and great uncles, such as the Hills, in the uh, category of caretaker relatives that are sufficiently close to qualify for Medicaid benefits on that basis. However, the agency has refused to honor that clear and longstanding rule, thereby denying the Hill's application for Medicaid. Instead, the agency has alleged conflict between the rule and other federal and state Medicaid authorities. We appreciate the opportunity this morning to set straight the rules really true lack of conflict with these other authorities, but also to highlight how the agency's position here disrupts the administrative framework that really is intended to, in so many words, help regulate the regulators for the public. Do you by any chance know when the state originally chose that expanded definition of caretaker relative? Your Honor, looking back at the, uh, re at the regulatory history, it appears it first appeared in 2003 as a temporary rule became permanent that same year. And then when was it effective, if you know? Uh, I believe that, I believe also 2003. And then um, uh, the, rule, the rule actually uh, uh, it lasted until it was expressly repealed in May uh, effective May of 2022, but for all purposes of this case, um, the the rule was in effect um, and and stayed on the books in the in the agency's own administrative code. So, but, was, but the but the state plan itself was amended in 2013, or effective 2014. There was a state plan amendment um, approved by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. It was submitted by the agency here in this case that was approved. Um, our position is that the rule does not conf conflict with, with the uh, state plan amendment as submitted. Um, one of the bases that... Oh, you, you're saying that the, the, the state plan amendment, what it, the, its definition of caretaker relative is the same as the definition of caretaker relative um, in the Medicaid manual or in the, in the um, state plan before it was amended? So the, the definition in the state plan amendment incorporates the federal definition, which is located at 42 CFR 435.4. Um, <clears throat> that definition, if you then cross-reference that one, it does not conflict with the definition in the rule because the, the federal regulation really can only be read as a regulatory minimum. It's really just a floor. Uh, subsections 1 of 2 of that regulation uh, state the, the minimum category of caretaker relatives who have to be covered under Medicaid, but then in subsection 3, it specifically contemplates the notion that a state can impose a more expansive definition of caretaker relative. And our position is that the rule as it stayed on the books for almost 20 years, that was the states electing that option. Um, but, you, but you agree that the state plan and the state plan amendment um, have different definitions of caretaker relative. Well, the state plan, as far as I've researched, doesn't really define caretaker relative before the state plan amendment was enacted. It, it's silent. And that's actually the same with the Social Security Act itself. The first real definition we see, in at least on the federal side, is with the enactment of uh, 435.4 um, in 2012. So are you saying then when with, with the passage of the Affordable Care Act, you know, and some changes that it made to Medicaid, 
then the states were given the choice or the option of, uh, of having a less expansive definition of caretaker relative? Well, they can't have a less expansive, Your Honor. They can only have a more expansive. They have to meet the, the well, federal you're saying, But you're saying great aunts and uncles were, were, were included in the definition of caretaker relative ever since. 2003. In North Carolina, yes. And so it would be less expansive if the state were given the option of saying we're not, we're no longer going to include great aunts and uncles. We're just going to include this, you know, the mandatory. Well, uh, the, the federal authorities were silent before the, before the state plan amendment and before the regulation was passed in 2012, the, the federal regulation, Your Honor. Mm -hmm. um, so North Carolina was uh, they had employed a state definition that wasn't prohibited by the federal government, but it also wasn't specifically permitted necessarily. Okay. Okay. Um, and then as of, as of the passage of the, uh, as Your Honor points out, um, the, the regulation was promulgated after the Affordable Care Act was enacted, 435.4. We then have clearly in writing the Fed setting a, a federal minimum in subsections one and two, but then permitting the more expansive definition in subsection three. And, 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 and that's our contention that what the rule is specifically permitted to do under that section. Um, the, the state contends that the, that the federal regulation preempts the rule as published, but as previously stated, the, the, the regulation can only be read as a floor um, if you look at it, um, this, if you look at the specific language, um, it doesn't. It, it it just says at state option. That rule is the state electing that option. Let me. I just want to make. But sure. not to you. So you're saying the state didn't have to check that box. The no. state could just not check the box and tell and tell the federal government that it's not going to have the more expansive definition of caretaker relatives and it doesn't matter because there's this old rule on the books well so we do is that have, what, i mean is that what you're telling us yes we're, we're saying that a blank checkbox is not enough to either force preemption or implied repeal a blank checkbox is uh best sort of analogized to silence and as we see in the the empire case um from the supreme court they they explicitly rejected the idea that silence can be clear enough intent uh, to to find uh, replied impeal, re yeah, replied yeah. repeal implied repeal but but that's the, isn't isn't checking the box the only way that the state can choose or that any state could choose the more expansive definition of caretaker relative so the regulation it, uh, it says at state option it does not say in the state plan, you have to select. The, the, the feds in other places have actually pointed out uh, specifically areas where you do have to elect options within the state plan itself. The other, there's a few other definitions in the same section that actually use the term in the state plan, you have to opt. This regulation, however, merely states at state option. And, and we believe that's sufficient regardless of the blank checkbox. Um, and, and it's not just because of it's not just because of what they're permitted under the Medicaid rules, but it's also because of what the rule means in terms of North Carolina law. Um, the interaction between the agency and the public, the public has a right to be able to rely on the rules that are in uh, in the agency's own administrative code. Um, and along those lines, even after the state plan amendment um, uh, was effective in 2014, the rule underwent periodic review in 2016 um, pursuant to the Regulatory Reform Act. Um, essentially, uh, as your honors may know, a, 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 uh, a statutory scheme that basically requires agencies every 10 years to start identifying their redundant, obsolete, or unneeded rules. However, this rule in 2016 went through that periodic process. The agency had an opportunity to participate in that process, and the Rules Review Commission determined that the rule was necessary without substantive public comment, or without substantive public interest was the phrase. Um, that had the effect of then putting the rule back on the books until it was expressly repealed in May of 2022. Well, didn't it actually have the effect of giving us two conflicting rules? Because the, the, there's a statute that says that the, the state plan amendment becomes a, has a force and effect of a rule. 
right? So now we have two conflicting rules. Am I correct? So at most, the rule and the state plan amendment are of equal weight. Being of equal weight, you then look at, does this blank checkbox really indicate a conflict? Um, especially in view of what the federal government permits. They permit that more expansive option. We have examples of other states who have much more expansive options than that permitted. Uh, for example, in West Virginia, it includes, uh, it includes all the way up to, I believe, great-great-great-grandparents and also great-great-aunts-uncles. So we have, uh, we have examples of where... The, uh, the federal government has specifically approved more expensive. Which is exactly the, the question I have. You know, like, you can't just say, oh, we're going to do this Medicaid plan and we're not going to tell the, the feds what, we're, what we plan to do, can you? I mean, don't you have to get it approved by CMS? So the point of the state plan is for the federal government to uh, determine that the state program is suitable for federal financial participation. So the, the federal dollars in North Carolina, that's about two-thirds and one-third for the state. Um, that is the purpose of the state plan, not to necessarily tell states um, that they can't um, run their medical assistance programs in certain ways. It creates floors, and once, you hit, once you're above that floor, you qualify for federal money. Um, there are ceilings as well. Um, what the rule, though, at 435.4 tells us is the feds did not intend to impose a ceiling on how states were to define caretaker relative. But regardless of whether or not they intended to, to impose a ceiling, don't, don't the states still have to notify them and get their approval? That, that is the purpose of the state plan is to kind of put, put under the microscope, this is what we intend to do with our state, with our Medicaid program. CMS then reviews it and says, okay. Um, we find this in compliance, and we then greenlight it for federal financial participation. So, yes, Your Honor, it is correct that it would be ideal to have included the, the, the rule that was on the books attached to the state plan. Why the agency did not do that at that time, I cannot speak to. Well, I mean, haven't there been cases where a state has been more generous and the feds have said, no, you're not allowed to do that, such as in, a, like, a Medicaid clawback instance? You know, like West Virginia, I believe, had a, didn't they have a, a statute where, like, you had your if your house was worth $50,000 or less, there was no clawback? Yeah, and if, and, and if the federal government does determine, I mean, their main, their, main, uh, their main stick, so to speak, is withholding federal money, right? But in the cases where uh, they do withhold the federal money, where does that leave the public in terms of other North Carolina administrative law principles? Yeah, but that's not my question. Okay. My question is... If you can't, a state can't necessarily be more generous and with no repercussions. You have to get the approval of the feds, I believe, and I'm asking you if that is correct. So the generally, yes. However, the North Carolina Medicaid enabling statute specifically states the state shall be responsible for the non-federal share. So as soon as a piece becomes non-federal, Theoretically, the, the statute accounts for that by saying the state is responsible for the non-federal piece. But isn't the state always responsible for the non-federal? It, it's it's responsible for, yeah, for the... I mean, for Medi the, Medicaid's not free to the state of North Carolina. Right, it pays a third approximately. Um, but in a case where the federal government stepped in and said, no, we're going to disallow these specific because we find they were not um, pr provided within the scope of your plan... If, if, if there's other binding state law that says the state was supposed to do that, the statute then steps in and says, well, you can't just, for example, tell the Hills they're not entitled to the benefits that you said they were. It, it would just be the state on the hook for that, that portion. But I think that, I think that, um, that scenario, especially given that um, many other states have much more expansive definitions, is highly unlikely for CMS to ever step in and do that. Um, and in, in the Court of Appeals in Martin, in the Martin versus DHHS case, explicitly considered the notion of, well, what happens if we issue an order, so to speak, that then puts the, the state in violation of the state plan? Well, CMS has an exception for court-ordered um, circumstances. It says we will not disallow FFP in the event of a court order. 
Um, so, so if if the court's kind of uh, asking, well, what are, we, are our hands tied in terms of um, uh, what is what are we to do if it violates the state plan, but it doesn't violate state law? I think that speaks directly to that issue. I, I have a question about the standard of review. Mm -hmm. um, what standard of review do you think that the Superior Court um, employed? Well, Your Honor, um, ideally the, the court would have put it in its order what standard it did employ. Um, I, I, will, I will mention, based on the review of the record, um, it, it does appear it was de novo, which is the correct standard. Uh, all that's at issue in this case are uh, questions of law. The record reflects that um, there are no disputes of fact, so de novo is proper. And, and you, are you familiar with the list in um, uh, Section 150B? Correct. Um, which one of those do you think? So the other errors of law. Other errors of law? <clears throat> If we disagree and we find that um, the amendment is in conflict with um, the regulations, with the administrative code, since it came later, there's not been, between that and May 22 effective change, there were not any other changes, changes renewing that old definition. Correct. That was inclusive of your clients. Well, in 2016, <clears throat> when the rule underwent periodic review and was republished after participation by the agency and the Rules Review Commission, it went to the Legislative Oversight Committee. That had the effect of putting the rule back on the books subsequent to well, the. Well, I, I was looking at that a little bit more. I, I was looking at you know how stuff enters the administrative code, and obviously there's so much in in those statutes. You know, I may have missed something, but I just. I didn't see where republishing makes it a reenactment. There, there's stuff about the effective dates of the rules and regulations, but I didn't see any of that tied to basically just being republished after after review. What what in, in the statutes? I understand kind of the more equitable good government concerns that, that you're raising, but what under the statutes would allow us to say this? reenacted the older definition, the definition that inclu inclusive defines. So if you look at the statutory scheme um, under the Regulatory Reform Act, it really is sort of a step-by-step -step process where the agency is supposed to undertake sort of a critical analysis of what should and should not still be on the books in terms of is this, they use the term necessary or unnecessary. Um, this rule was determined to be necessary. So it went through an actual review where the agency had to tell the Rules Review Commission, we believe these rules are unnecessary, we believe these are necessary. That then gets vetted by the Rules Review Commission, um, issuing a report to the Joint Legislative Committee uh, over, over the Regulatory Reform Act, who then um, basically, uh, and they can do it with silence even, um, if they don't respond, but it, it has the impact of then removing what they said was unnecessary. So there actually is a process of rules are going to get kicked out. Anything that doesn't get kicked out, those stays in. And we believe that's highly significant, um, especially if you're looking at the if you're looking at the agency's argument in terms of the temporal nature. We have a later um, instance where the agency's own action kind of contradicts what it said the rule was intended or the state plan amendment was intended to do. Um, and, and along those lines, um, regardless of the, the 2016 uh, periodic review, we've got to look at the, the very, very high standard that needs to be imposed for an implied repeal. Um, issuing sort of implied repeals left and right would obviously disrupt the administrative framework in many ways. So instead, um, what we have, um, as, as provided in, um, in, in the case law cited in the briefs, there's, there's, a, there's a strong presumption against any sort of implied repeal. In any intent, it has to be manifestly clear. Um, the standard we, beyond, beyond that sort of threshold standard, though, is what we look for is irreconcilable conflict. Can the two conflicts stand together, or are they so repugnant um, that, they must, that one of them must fall? Um, our position is that the mere blank checkbox does not arise to that level. Um, uh, the, again, we have silence, which under the Empire case was determined not to be um, sufficient intent. 
Um, we then also have the agency's conflicting own interpretations regarding the applicability of the rule. Um, in the record on page 134, we actually have a, a copy of a, another final agency decision issued mere months before the decision in the Hills case, um, where the, the agency, as the final arbiter says, applies the rule in favor of the applicant. So any intent, um, any intent or sort of um, deference that's provided um, for the agency in that regard, we think that this, that clearly undermines it. But you haven't argued that that treating your client differently from the, the person in the the other order was an arbitrary decision. You haven't raised that as a ground in this appeal. No, we haven't raised arbitrary. Uh, merely pointing out that any deference owed, we think, should be removed based on that. Um, the Martin case makes clear that any deference that is provided to the agency um, um, really needs to be discounted if there are instances of the agency actually adopting the opposite position in other cases. How much weight do you think the, the trial court should have given to the Medicaid manual? The Medicaid manual? I mean the Superior Court. I've said. Oh, okay. The Superior Court um, uh, should have, the in terms of, in comparison with the rule, um, any day the rule wins over the manual. And that's based on simple APA principles. The rule, uh, the, the manual is going to be an un, uh, unpromulgated uh, rule that was not subject to notice and comment rulemaking. Um, and so as compared to a rule that does undergo that process, the, 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 the rule is going to trump the manual. Uh, in the order, it looks like the, like the Superior Court reviewed the, like it's um, page S51, which was regard, you know, regarding eligibility, uh, financial eligibility, Correct. as opposed to S25. That's correct. So yeah, we we believe that was error. Um, the the actual relevant page in the state plan amendment is S25, as your honor points out, where it's actually talking about that federal definition. It's giving them the option 435.4. S51-1, while yes, it talks about the the category of caretaker relatives that are covered under Medicaid, it's only giving states the option in that scenario to adopt more uh, liberal financial criteria, so income. It's giving them the option to say yes or no, we want to expand the income thresholds. Um, and so we believe um, that was also error. And, and I, I can see why the state would want S51 to be the page we look at, because it's, it's conceitedly, it says yes or no, right? Uh, on page S25, we have the blank checkbox, which we believe shows much, much less intent than a yes or no question. Uh, it merely wasn't checked. Um, and, and the rule in Empire, I think, should apply in this case based on that. Well, let me ask you how we differentiate silence. Because to me, we've got a pre-printed form box that starts with the state elects the following options, then colon, and then has these different options, and it could have selected more than one based on, on the way that's phrased. So I guess I struggle with if you're you're making a choice and electing options, is it really silent? Because there's nowhere to decline one of the options. So I guess I struggle with how is it silenced just by not checking something when the directions are to affirmatively make a selection. I think the the proper thing in light of the the rule being on the books would have been for the state to select the box. Um, if they knew what their code had said, um, because they were providing this uh, to this group, providing benefits to this group of uh, this group of individuals. So, are you contending that if there's a rule that says one thing, the state can't ever amend its plan to say something different? It, it would need to repeal the rule, or it would need to do something so manifestly clear that implied repeal would apply. Our contention in this case is that we get nowhere close to that standard being met, just based on the blank checkbox. What is the process for amending the state plan? Who makes that determination? Like somebody went in with a mouse and selected this box and little drop-down button under it. Um, what's the process for that, and who 
does that? That might be something the agency can speak better towards, but my impression from the publicly available documents, especially when you look at like who signs the document that's going to CMS, who's on the cover letters, the transmittal cover letters, it appears just someone in the department is doing it. Um, what they're, what, how high up, I do not know. The letters typically do contain sort of the form signature of the deputy secretary, at least over Medicaid. Um, but I believe it's just an employee who's filling out the state plan amendment. I assume it gets reviewed. Um, I don't know that there's anything in the record, though, necessarily in this case, saying who actually filled it out. And the statutes don't provide themselves any procedural safeguards to that? Not particularly. Um, uh, it, it does say that the statutes do say that the, the department does not have the authority to sort of change the eligibility categories willy-nilly. Um, those are set by the legislature. And, and in this case, the legislature actually doesn't even use the term caretaker relative, so that's not helpful here. It just uses the word families, um, which before the ACA and the, um, a lot of the welfare reform in the 90s, um, that's how Medicaid was tied. It was more families, AFDC-related mm -hmm. type programs. So I think that's why the statute says that. Um, but, but since they started using the term caretaker relative, it's my understanding the General Assembly hasn't spoken on what they intend the definition to be. You're in your rebuttal time, so. Okay. Thank Green. It's just green. Can, yeah. It's can you yellow. see the yellow? Yes, sir. Yeah. It's just a color. That's when you'll have three yeah. minutes. Yeah. <laughs> At first, that's what I thought. I was like, I can't see the number. It's just a color. So. Um, good morning, Your Honors. My name is Chris Augusto Carrero. Um, this is Adrian Dellinger, co-counsel, and we both represent the Appley in this case. That's the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services, the Division of Health Benefits. Um, after hearing the discussion between your honors and um, plaintiff's counsel or petitioner's counsel, I think it's important to kind of step back and look at what authority the state plan um, gives the states uh, and what exactly the state plan is. Because um, opposing counsel uh, did make some general statements about it, and I just want to clarify uh, what the state plan is. So Title 19 of the Social Security Act was passed several years ago in 1965. That created Medicare and Medicaid. And at that time, the federal government mandated the general parameters of what a Medicaid program would look like in each state. Since that time, and, and as your honors um, observed, Various states um, implement and provide different levels of coverage depending on you know, what their uh, Medicaid program uh, is determined to cover based on their budget, based on the legislature. So every state in the union can have different levels of Medicaid coverage so long as they provide the basic mandatory requirements that the federal agency CMS requires. In order for a state to have a Medicaid program, they must enact and get approved by CMS the state plan. The state plan is the controlling document. It is the controlling mechanism by which Medicaid is administered in every state in the country. And in North Carolina specifically, the general statutes um, the general statutes codify that, so to speak. Um, if you look, Your Honors, at um, 108A 54.1B subsection D, it clearly states that the state plan, the state plan amendments, and the waivers have the full force and effect of the rules adopted pursuant to Article 2A of Chapter 150B. And then in addition to having the full force and effect of the rules, that are codified in the administrative code. 108A54C indicates and says the Medicaid program shall be administered according to the state plan and state plan amendments. And that's what we have here. So we have a state plan 
estate plan amendment that was passed in 2013, and that 2013 state plan amendment essentially repealed whatever other definition was in the North Carolina Administrative Code at that time. So at that time, the definition of caretaker relative did include great aunts and great uncles. However, in 2013, North Carolina explicitly stated in the state plan amendment that it was no longer going to offer that expanded coverage. Who made the amendment? Who makes the state plan amendments? The state plan amendment is drafted and written by a group of people in the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services, DHB. And so um, it's not just one person. Uh, they have um, you know, legislative experts. They do that in consultation with um, counsel from the Attorney General's office. And they review all of the amendments that they would like to enact. In this particular case, in 2013, they were doing it in response to the Affordable Care Act. And they were um, making a lot of changes. Uh, I believe it's like a 40-something page amendment um, that was submitted. And in that amendment, if you look on the record at page 234, there's not a blank checkbox, you know, as opposing counsel describes. The state has to affirmatively elect to provide expanded coverage. It's an affirmative <clears throat> option. And if you look at the form, it's the federal form that's required by the state to submit. The state has to affirmatively say yes, but we affirmatively said no. Where in the statutes is the guidance for DHS, DHHS in making those determinations on the amendment and to make those selections and to make those changes? Where is that set out in the statutes, what that guidance is? Well, Your Honor, um, it is, there is a statute that states um, that the state plan and the Medicaid program, they have to be, um, they have to be administered according to federal law and federal regulation. Um, and I believe that that, I believe that that is found, Your Honor, under 108A54.1B and also... Uh, in, excuse me, in 150B of Article 2A of 150B, in the definitions, subsection 22, um, it specifically states that the state plan and state, man, state plan amendments are exempt from the APA. They're exempt from um, the, the rule promulgating authority. So what process. procedural safeguards are there for these amendments? And you're asking for procedural safeguards as far as? As making sure this is a, a proper delegation of legislative authority. Absolutely. Um, it, it's clear that the, the legislature here appointed North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. It is the agency that is mandated to govern the Medicaid program. And that was that's in our general statutes. Um, and then when you look beyond that, all of the amendments, any changes to North Carolina Medicaid, they're, they're not done in a vacuum. They are publicly available and there is a process for public comment um, and review of those state plan amendments prior to submission to Medicare. So while it's not the exact same process that's used under the APA, it's analogous. The, the state plan amendment doesn't go to CMS um, willy-nilly, as opposing counsel described, you know, it, there there is a process by which it is reviewed. Um, it is approved by the director of, back then in 2013, it was called DMA, now it's DHB, the Division of Health Benefits. Um, and then it is posted on their website and it is publicly published, for lack of a, a better phrase. Um, and, and that those uh, stakeholders, those folks who, who have an issue with it or are concerned about its implications can certainly contact the agency. The agency then submits that amendment to CMS and CMS determines whether or not it's appropriate. So that is your safeguard. You've got it published ahead of time so that folks can respond and, and provide comments if, if they disagree with it. But ultimately, it's a federally approved document and it is CMS 
at the federal level that determines whether it's an appropriate use of the administrative powers by the state. Um, and so CMS reviews the state plan and determines, one, whether it's compliant with federal law, and second, um, whether it's going to be consistent with or contradict the previous elements of the state plan. If it contradicts or repeals previous elements of the state plan, then CMS makes note of that. And when you go and look at the state plan, which is now over 1,900 pages, the first several pages tell you which portions have been repealed, which ones are no longer in effect. And so in 2013, when North Carolina chose to no longer cover great aunts and great uncles, that's exactly what it did. So if you look at page S51-1 and S25-1, they both, when you read them together, indicate that North Carolina was not going to be providing that optional coverage. Um, I have a couple questions about the yes, standard sir. review. Um, what standard review of review do you contend the Superior Court um, applied? Your Honor, just based on the nature of the questions during the hearing, but also in looking at the order, I believe that um, the judge did did use a de novo review. Um, and, and arguably, because this is a question of law, Your Honor, um, that would be appropriate. I mean, certainly there is an argument that because this is an agency action, that there is some deference, um, Your Honor, that is, uh, you know, given to the agency. Uh, but I don't want to overstate that because this is a clear question of law. Do, do you agree with uh, with the plaintiffs that um, the other area of law is uh, the category under 150B? Um, I, you know, that is kind of the catch-all when you don't have a better basis for, you know, <laughs> yes. for, for, for um, a, appeal, then that's often used. Um, I mean... The agency contends that there was no error of law. So whether plaintiff wants to, you know, say it's under subsection six or whatever subsection it is, um, the agency firmly <coughs> contends that it did not violate any portions of 150B. Um, and in addition, your honors, I just want to again um, <coughs> state that the state plan, as it's laid out in the North Carolina's statutory scheme, the state plan is the document that is going to determine the administration and the operation of Medicaid in North Carolina. And so the state plan amendment, um, the agency contends that in 2013, what that did was effectively repeal the administrative code's definition of caretaker relative. How, how do you reconcile the Arrowwood case? Um, it, which you could read to render the state plan amendment federal law. Yes, Your Honor. And um, 108A, 54-1B um, of the North Carolina General Statutes. Yes. Which states that the state plan amendment has the force and effect of a rule adopted pursuant to, to sure. the state law. Um, how do you reconcile that, that that's um, North Carolina statute and the Arrowwood case? I think, Your Honor, that the statute um, basically was saying in a general manner that these, the state plan, the state plan amendment, and the waivers, um, to the extent that there's any question about you know, what force and effect they have, it's, it's going to be the same force and effect of, of the administrative rules. However, in Arrowwood, which was decided after this statute was enacted, it expanded that. Um, and it expanded it for a good reason, because the state plan is a federally approved document and Medicaid is a federally run program in conjunction with the state. But can, so can the state plan amendment be federal, a federal law and a state rule at the same time? I think in terms of semantics, Your Honor, yes. You could have um, something that is a, a state rule, but it actually, at the end of the day, the agency contends has the effect of federal regulation, of federal law. And when you look at Arrowwood, it looks at a Medicaid waiver. And so we don't have a waiver in this case, but it's analogous. So in Arrowwood, the waiver that North Carolina had 
was given the same full and effect of same force and effect of a federal regulation in the CFR making it federal law. And we have a similar case here where there is a specific provision that is in the state plan. It specifically restricted what had previously been covered under North Carolina Medicaid. And that specific provision, along with all of the other provisions in the state plan and state plan amendment, have the effect of federal law. And even if your honors decide it doesn't, even if this court decides that really it's just the same as the ACA, um, the North Carolina Administrative Code, then the agency's application of the SPA amendment in 2013 was still correct because it was enacted in 2013, which was after the time that the definition of a caretaker relative had been in the Administrative Code. And while opposing counsel contends that the 2016 general review uh, somehow resurrected that law, there or resurrected that rule, um, you know, plaintiffs don't point to any case law which states, which states that um, the uh, the amendment in 2013 absolutely repealed the definition that was in the administrative code. And to the extent that you know North Carolina Medicaid or DHHS inadvertently left that you know in the code, it was a, it was essentially a dead rule. It, it didn't mean anything by them because it had been repealed by the state plan. And, you know, plaintiffs argue that it's not fair, essentially. It's not fair because they're depending on the statutes, they're depending on the administrative code. They look at the administrative code, it has that definition, they're relying on the definition that says great aunt and great uncle are going to be covered. However, it is the state plan that governs, period. And in the state plan, you have the more specific statutory language and you have the more recent statutory language. And the agency contends that, you know, the general principles of statutory interpretation tell us and guide us that the more recent and the more specific rule are going to prevail. And for that reason, the 2013 amendment trumps the administrative code that was in existence prior to that. Your Honors, I also want to briefly discuss um, the McCran case. The plaintiffs brought that up, or petitioners brought that up in their, in their brief, and it wasn't discussed, but I just want to take an opportunity to distinguish this case from McCran. Um, you know, in that case, the the beneficiary of Medicaid services had been receiving those services for four years. And later in time, North Carolina made a change to that waiver program. And in McCran, this court stated that while the waiver had the force and effect of a rule, it didn't carry the same weight as one that had been promulgated by the administrative, I mean, the administrative process. Um, however, if you look more closely at that decision, what you see is that there are a number of differences. Um, the waiver that was determined not to have the same force and effect of a rule was unclear and was subject to even more agency interpretation. And that was one of the key reasons why it was found not to have the same force and effect of a rule. But we don't have that in this case, because if you look at the state plan, it's clear that North Carolina is not going to cover anything more than what is federally required. And the states absolutely have the ability and they have the obligation to make those determinations, because states need to remain fiscally responsible. And what was covered you know, in 2005 and 2012 isn't going to be covered in 2014. And that's exactly what happened here. North Carolina scaled back the coverage and they were specific. It was unambiguous. And there's no need to look at the administrative code for a couple of reasons that I've already stated. First, because the administrative code definition was repealed in 2013 and the 2016 general review does not resurrect that. And even if you were to say that it wasn't repealed in 2013, 
you essentially have a conflict of two roles, as Your Honor pointed out and asked. If you have those two roles that are in conflict, then you look to see which is more specific and which one was more recent in time. And that would be the state plan amendment. So for those reasons, Your Honor, we would ask um, that, that this court affirm the lower court's um, ruling and find that the agency properly applied the, the correct caretaker relative definition. If there are no other questions, I'll conclude. I have a quick question. Yes, Your Honor. Um, do you know when the North Carolina State Plan was, was um, when they initially opted to include great aunts and uncles? I asked I asked the plaintiff's yes. uh, counsel, and, and he said he believed it was two, um, 2003. Well, Your Honor, I believe what, um, what plaintiff's counsel stated was that that was when the administrative code, when North Carolina opted to take the, to yeah, cover great aunts and great uncles. That's not the same as the state plan. Right. Right. So what the state plan had done prior to 2013. Uh, 2003 um, is what. Right. So okay. I'm sorry. So, oh, just, okay. <laughs> so just to clarify, is your question, when did the North Carolina state plan first? First start including grades. Okay. I don't. I don't know precisely, Your Honor. It certainly was at least starting in 2003, but it could have been much earlier than that, to be honest. And I can certainly uh, review that and submit that additional information to the court. Um, it, it is difficult at times to determine <laughs> when some of the amendments um, took effect and when they didn't. As I stated, right. it's a 1,900-page document, and there have been hundreds of amendments since it was first um, approved in 1980. I hope you can control F. You <laughs> <laughs> can certainly control F and C, Your Honor. Um, but at the end of the day, what's, what's really important isn't what happened in 2003 or 2005. It's what happened in 2013, and effectively the state plan amendment repealed the caretaker definition, the caretaker relative definition, and any subsequent general review that happened does not resurrect that. Um, and to the extent that this court, uh, you know, does not follow Arrowwood and determines that this is this rule does not have the weight of federal regulations. The agency contends that it still trumps the old definition because it's more recent in time and it's more specific, Your Honors. So with no other questions, uh, thank you very much and we ask you to affirm. Thank you very much. And how much time do we have left on rebuttal? Um, he does have four minutes. Four. Okay. Uh, first, first, since it's somewhat fresh, I'd like to respond to Judge Zachary's question regarding uh, how did how did how was caretaker relative defined in the state plan before the rule? It's my understanding it was silent. There wasn't a definition in the state plan itself. As I mentioned, the the um, up until about '96, a lot of the the family and children's programs were tied to AFDC. So it was the AFDC program that sort of tied in that definition of caretaker relative. It wasn't until even on the federal side until we saw in the 2012 rule after the ACA where the feds actually started providing an explicit definition of who they saw as the minimum. Um, so it was not in the plan is our understanding. Um, I'll also, I'll concede, it, I agree, it is not fair what has happened to the Hills in this case, but it's also based on um, controlling law of this court. Uh, if you look at the Farlow case, uh, it stands for the proposition that the uh, that the public, a party, has the right to insist that a agency follow its own rule. Um, that exists out of principles of fairness. Um, it, it, it comes mainly from um, a long line of cases, initially from the United States Supreme Court, but starting with the Accardi case, um, reiterated in the United States v. Nixon case. Um, but then also, um, it has started to be adopted as the law in, in, in this state as well, on the state side. We have the Farlow case, but then we also have the Tully case, um, where the Supreme Court sort of borrows that same rule, Accardi, Nixon, Farlow, to essentially, um, in that case, the Supreme Court told the, um, uh, it, 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 it held that the, uh, that the plaintiff uh, was able to actually state a fruits of labor um, uh, claim under the uh, under the North Carolina Constitution based on that very doctrine of an agency has to follow its own rules and failure to do so could violate the Constitution. Um, the I'll also note that the 
Arrowwood case, uh, we believe, is highly distinguishable. Um, the, that case involved a waiver, um, which a waiver is essentially the, the agency going to the federal government and saying, we want permission not to follow the federal law. So here's what we propose. And, the, and I concede that the, the CMS coming back and saying, approved, that is significant because there is no federal law to apply. It makes sense that Arrowwood then applies the waiver as the federal law. But in this case, we do not have a waiver. We have a state plan amendment, which is mere attestation that you're in compliance with, um, with the fed minimum federal standards. Um, I'll also note the McCran case. This case is more like the McCran case. Um, although McCran also involved a, a, a waiver, I think that's highly significant because in that case, the court decided even in the case of a waiver, we're not going to just apply Arrowwood um, without very good justification. The McCran court in that case um, uh, declined to apply Arrowwood, and that was mainly um, because they viewed Arrowwood as the exception, not the rule. We're only going to do it in the clearest of circumstances. Arrowwood involved a circumstance where there was a, a waiver with specific terms and conditions, but also um, an actual contract that was signed by beneficiaries where they were put on notice and they had to put their signature on a document stating what they were waiving, essentially, what the feds or what the state was waiving uh, in providing this program. Uh, and, and so those were the circumstances that drove the court in Arrowwood to sort of give that special status of federal law. Um, and, and what we have really... You're at your time, so I'll okay. let you close. Okay, thank you. Um, Just very briefly. We'd, we'd ask the court to reverse the, the Superior Court order um, and uh, issue instructions that the Hills actually uh, be found within the definition of caretaker relative as great aunts and great uncles. Thank you for your time. All right, thank you very much. Thank you all for your arguments. And uh, we will, we're going to adjourn court, but we're going to come back. Um, what we usually do after these sessions, and unless somebody here tells me otherwise, uh, is, um, you know, we'll uh, have a few minutes for if the students or anyone has any questions uh, of the judges, obviously not about any of the cases we've heard, um, but about anything in general uh, about the Court of Appeals or whatever. <laughs> And also, if the attorneys, you know, if you don't have somewhere to run off to immediately, um, you know, if you do, I understand. But if you could stay for a few minutes, um, you know, I'd, I'd like for you two to introduce yourself to the students and see if they have any questions for you. So, so we'll adjourn and we'll do that. All rise. This session of the North Carolina Court of Appeals is adjourned. All right. Thank you.